You know, the most dreadful malady a person can know is hopelessness. Hopelessness is the assurance that things aren't going to get better, that they're, they aren't going to improve. And seeing a situation as it is, feeling it as you do, believing that it will not improve, you, you fall into despair. You fall into complete hopelessness. And hopelessness is especially prevalent around the holiday season, isn't it? When we come to the holiday season, it's, it's a time of reflection for us. It's a time for us to look over the course of the year and we begin to think about things. We think about those things that haven't changed. Maybe you thought that this was the year that you would get married or this was the year that you would have children or this was the year that your health would improve or this was the year that you would stop living paycheck to paycheck or this was the year that you're, you would uh, be reconciled to your spouse. But here you are and another year has passed and you've come and Thanksgiving has come and gone and Christmas is right on the horizon and you reflect back over the last year and you realize hardly anything has changed at all. And you're tempted to be hopeless. You're tempted to fall into despair. Maybe it's not the things that haven't changed for you. Maybe it's the things that have changed. This year, you weren't able to go to the home that you wanted to be able to go to for Thanksgiving. You're, someone was missing from your family, someone that you lost over the last year. Or maybe there's, there's, there, you're at odds with somebody that you love now that you weren't with last year. Or maybe since last year, you lost your job. Maybe since last year, your business has begun to tank. Maybe since last year, your health has, has come out from under you like a rug. And you think, and you think, this is not where I expect it to be. And this is certainly not where I want to be. And you are tempted toward despair and toward hopelessness. In fact, if, the, if hopelessness really is the certainty that things are not going to get better, what we can be sure of this morning is for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who know Jesus, hopelessness is anti-gospel though. It's anti-gospel. We all hurt. My goodness, we hurt. It's not that we don't have pain. It's not that we don't face trauma. It's not that we don't face discouragement. It's not that we don't have tears for those of us who are in Christ. But hopelessness is something altogether. Because if hopelessness is having no hope for the future, what we can be certain of is for those of us in Christ, those of us who take seriously the promises of God's word, those of us who take seriously the fulfillment and the assurance that we have in Christ, we we can know that the Christian life promises us that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And maybe that is a word for you this Advent season. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, whatever has happened or whatever hasn't happened, whatever you're facing at work or at home or in your family or in your health or in your finances, whatever you're facing, can I say, wherever you are this morning, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That is the hope that is substantiated in Christ. That is the hope that is verified in the Advent. And that is the hope that I want us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter two. Over the next four weeks, we're actually gonna spend all of our time in Isaiah. Isaiah is quoted uh, more than any of the other prophets in all of the gospel accounts. And so I think it's a great place for us to go as we celebrate Christ's coming. So when you get to Isaiah chapter two, would you stand with me as we read God's word together? Isaiah chapter two, we're gonna read the first five verses together. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amat, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Isaiah chapter two begins with hope. And it's really an interruption of hope. Isaiah chapter one, and again, picking up in chapter two, verse six, is about a prophesied judgment that is to come against the people of Judah. Isaiah is the the prophet of Judah. He would have been 700 years before the time of Jesus. And so when we come to chapter two and we look at chapter one, what we have is him saying, look, you've had a a 50 year reign from Uzziah. You have had time of prosperity. You have had time of conquest. You have had times of peace, but those times are coming to a close. Those times are coming to a close. The people of of Judah had begun to go and begin to worship the false gods of the other people of their region. They had seen the prosperity of the Canaanites and they'd been drawn in. And so what they would do is they would offer the sacrifices to the Lord that he required. And they believed that as long as they offered the sacrifices that the Lord required, that then they were free to go and to worship all the other gods and go to all of the other high places. Kind of, if, you, if we kind of live in a pluralistic society today that says, you know, all the gods are probably going in the same direction. And it was kind of the thought of, if I can just worship them all, then I can be sure my bases are covered. If I will just worship them all, then I can be certain that I will have the salvation that comes from the Lord and the prosperity that comes from Baal. And so I'm gonna worship the Lord. I'm gonna offer his sacrifices. And it doesn't really matter beyond that if what I do so long as I do the rituals the right way. And where we are in Isaiah is God has had enough. God has had enough of it. And God is going to bring judgment against his people and he is going to purify his people and he's gonna reduce them to a remnant. He's gonna purify them through the fires of the Assyrian empire like iron ore being purified and refined in the furnace. But in the midst of all of that, he gives a word of hope. He gives a word of encouragement, having told them of the purification, having told them of the days of fire that is to come. He says, he says, those days will not last forever. Those days will not last forever. In fact, those hard days that are ahead, the, the Assyrian attack that is ahead, the, the seizure of my people that is ahead, the exile into Babylon that is ahead, those days will, cause it to, will make it look as though the promises of the Lord are in jeopardy, as though my covenants are failing. But I write to you today that I will use all of the hardship, all of the affliction to advance my glory. In fact, I will use all of the hardship and all of the affliction to advance the nation of Israel, to advance the Judaite people. He says, so it shall come to pass in the latter days. It shall come. It's not, I hope it will come. It might come. It, it, it should come. It's no, it shall come to pass in the latter days. And so what we see here is we see a tale of two Zions. 
a tale of two Zions, the Zion that is and the Zion that will be. A Zion as she is, a Zion that is there in her unfaithfulness, awaiting to be refined by the purifying fire and, and, and a greater Zion, a, an optimistic Zion, a Zion which will be faithful, a Zion which will be saved, a Zion which will bring glory to the name of her God. Now, if you're there, maybe this morning you're wondering like, what in the world does that have to do with the Advent? Like, what does that have to do with Jesus coming and being born to a virgin, being laid in the hay? And uh, like, where, where does that go? And I think it's a two-pronged answer. Two-pronged answer. First of all, Jesus's birth is the fulfillment of the hope that's found in this text. Jesus's, Jesus's birth is a fulfillment of the hope that is found in this text. In other words, Jesus's birth is proof that God keeps his promises. Jesus's birth is the proof that when, G when God says it shall come to pass, it will come to pass. But there's a second layer. Not only is Jesus's birth the fulfillment that is of this text that's found in this text, but Jesus's birth is the assurance of the hope that is found in this text. Because as you read chapter two, what you might say is, well, I can see some of that, but I don't see all of it. I've seen some of the nations coming to the kingdom, but I haven't seen all of it. I see some declaring God as being greater than all other gods, but I don't see all of it yet. I don't see complete peace. I know there is peace among God's people and I know there is peace within. I know all of that, but, but when I look around the world, in fact, when I look at my own life, I don't see peace at all. I see hardship. I see, so, so there's a sense in which this has come to pass. And there's another sense in which it still shall come to pass. That there's a sense in which Jesus's birth is the fulfillment of what's happened, but there is still much yet to be fulfilled. And so he is the assurance that every word, every dot, every tittle, every promise, every prophecy, every hope will ultimately come to fruition and be proven true. See, what we see is that the fact that God sent his own son to be born of a virgin, to live in righteousness, to die in forsakenness, and then raise in glory is the proof that it shall really come to pass. And so this morning, what I want us to see are three specific hopes, three specific hopes that Jesus fulfills and assures in his advent. So the first hope that I want us to see, and, and the word advent, like if that's a new word, that may be a new word for some of you. Advent is just like the Latin word for coming. Like Jesus, is, so we have two advents, Jesus's first advent and his second advent, his first coming and his second return when he comes again. It's, the, it's just the historical way that we remember that. So the first, the first hope that I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is the hope for a greater kingdom. Jesus is the hope for a greater kingdom. Listen to what it says in chapter two. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. Now, if you'll remember when Jesus began his ministry in the gospels, he began by uh, really taking on for himself much of the very same message that John the Baptist preached. And John and in Mark chapter one, Mark records what he said, what Jesus preaches as being the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, for me, it took me a long time to have any idea what exactly that meant. 
But I think what we see in Isaiah chapter two is a clarification of what Jesus means when he begins his ministry and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When he, he tells Isaiah, says that he sees a vision of a mountain that is lifted up, that is far above every other mountain, that is, that is superior to all of the other mount, mountains that are around him. And, and what he's giving is he's giving us an illustration of the kingdom. He's giving us an illusion of the kingdom, of what the kingdom of heaven will look like in comparison to all of the other kingdoms of the world. You see, what they understood in Isaiah's time is they would have understood mountains to have, to have had a close association with the gods. And so you would go and you would look at mountains and you would say, that is where the gods live. And the greater the mountain, the greater the god that lived there. The mountains would go and it appeared as though they were reaching all the way into heaven. And so the thought was, is that if I can go up to the high places, if I can go up to the tops of these mountains, I can fellowship and commune with the mighty gods of the world. You can think about Zeus, the Greek God, and how he lived on Mount Olympus. You can think about Baal, who lived on Mount Zaphon. And you can think even about Yahweh, who was said to have lived in the temple in the Holy of Holies, which was placed on Mount Zion. Now there's an interesting problem. And perhaps it's one of the deceptions that the, the early Israelites were falling into. If you look at Zion, if you look at the mountain of God, it appears geographically like in front of you, smaller than the other mountains. It's not as impressive, it's not as, as daunting as, as even those that you could have seen from the very same mountain. And so the thought is, if, if Yahweh is the greatest God, if Yahweh is the God that is above every other God, if Yahweh is the God before whom all of us must answer, if Yahweh is the provider and Yahweh is the protector, if Yahweh is the covenant almighty, why is his mountain smaller? Why is his mountain shorter? Why does he not go up into the heavens? And you'll, if you know anything about the book of Isaiah or the reign of King Uzziah, you know that Uzziah was overall a pretty good king. But the main strike against King Uzziah was that he refused to take down the high places. You ever, you ever read high places in the Old Testament? That's what he's talking about. He refused to take down the altars on tops, of these God, on tops of these mountains where his people would go and offer up idolatrous worship, blaspheming the name of God by declaring that another God even exists, let alone can help them. And so Isaiah says, I envision a day I see a day that is coming. I see a soon coming day and the latter days coming over the horizon of history when the mountain of the Lord, when Mount Zion will rise above and Everest will be dwarfed by its presence, when Baal will be dwarfed by his presence, when Zeus will be dwarfed by his presence, I envision a day when all of the nations will gather around the base of the mountain of the Lord and they will acknowledge that God is greater than all gods, that Yahweh is the covenant God, that Yahweh is the redeeming God, that Yahweh is the providing and protecting and delivering God. So when he says, when he says that it shall come to pass, that it shall be established as the highest of mountains, it is a declaration of the supremacy of God. He is making a statement that there is no God that is comparable. And this is what Jesus meant. 
This is what Jesus meant. This is what Jesus meant when he said that the time was fulfilled and that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus had to inaugurate. He came, he came to inaugurate the plan of God to bring all of the earth beneath the reign of this great king. See, there have been many great kings over the course of history, haven't there? We can name some of them. We can name Caesar and Pharaoh. We can name, uh, we can name uh, King George and King Henry. We, we can name kings and emperors that go all the way through. And many of them knew great conquests and many of them knew great prosperity. And many of them were beloved by their people and feared by their neighbors. Many of them went to death and were covered in golden tombs at their burial. But you know what? They all went into the grave, didn't they? They all went into the grave. The greatest empires and the greatest nations that the world has ever known have all increased in strength and then weakened. All of them have been established and then faded away. It's likely that if time continues on long enough, the United States herself will rise into power and then quickly decrease. So much so that over the course of history, we just say it's just another one. It's just another king. It's just another army. It's just another empire. It's just another nation. But, but, but there is a kingdom. There is a king that is to be established. There is a promise of a kingdom that cannot fade away, that is feared by all who are not within it. There is a king that was promised on the throne of David that will reign there forever. And that king, that king was born to a virgin, not to a man. That king lived a perfect and righteous life. That king, yes, he went into a grave and he wasn't covered in grave, uh, gold covered in gold. He was covered in thorns, but as he went to the grave, the grave could not hold him there. And he fulfilled the promise. He fulfilled the promise. The time of fulfillment has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Christ has come. Christ has has come. It is a greater kingdom. But, but, but just as lowly Mount Zion will one day be exalted above Everest, the lowly Christ didn't just fulfill. The lowly Christ was born into a trough of hay and then raised triumphantly from the grave as the fulfillment of the promise and as the assurance, as the assurance that he's not finished yet. As the assurance that if you go to his grave, you won't find him there. But if you look up to the heavens, that he's there and he's waiting on you to come to him. That one day he will return. And before this great king, at the base of this great mountain, the one before whom all peoples and all kings and all gods will declare that his name is greater than every other name. And on that day, the kingdom that was inaugurated in his birth will be the very same king that will be consummated in his return. The question before us today is, will you bow to this king? Will you bow to this king? Will you keep trying to find the kings of the world, keep trying to search out the gods and the high places that are around you? Will you keep trying to climb the ladder of your own selfish ambition? Will you keep trying to attain the prosperity of the world? Will you keep trying by your own ingenuity and your own wisdom and your own effort to do what you want? Maybe coming to church and giving him an offering, but at the same time trying to have all of the things of the world or, or, or will you look at the substantial 
spiritual hope that you have, will you look at the assurance of the Christ that came, be certain that he has returned, and bow today before him that you might enjoy his kingdom and his reign forever. Will you bow before this king today? Jesus is the fulfillment and Jesus is the assurance. Jesus is the fulfillment of our hope and Jesus is the assurance of our hope. The second hope that I want us to see is that Jesus is the hope for all peoples. Jesus is the hope for all peoples. Zion never really understood her mission. When I say Zion, that is another word for Jerusalem, even representative of, of all of Israel. And I, I use that word here because it's the word that Isaiah uses and we don't use it often enough. But, but Zion never truly understood her mission. You see, we live in a world of worship, don't we? We live in a world of worship. Everybody is worshiping. Some worship themselves. Some, some worship gods that have names. Some worship gods that you can spend or own. But, but we're all worshiping. And Israel was the same. They lived in the midst of a world of worshipers. And they were, had a responsibility. They were to be a blessing to all nations. That is, they were to have such an intimate and close walk with God and relationship with God that they were to live so dependent upon his protection, so dependent upon his provision that all of the other nations would see them and want their God, want what they had. That they would see their God and be amazed at his provision and be amazed at what he had accomplished. But, but instead, what did they do? They turned inward. They withdrew from the world and then they took the gods of the world for themselves. So instead of, being, of making the other nations jealous of the Almighty, making the other nations jealous that they know the one true God, instead they looked to the world and they said, I want what you have too. I want what you have too. And they forsook their mission. They forsook their mission to be a city on a hill that the world could look to. You see, for whomever, verse two is true, Verse three must be true. If verse two is true of your future, verse three must be true of your mission. Think about it. I said, what, what does verse two teach us? Verse two teaches us that God is superior to all other gods. That, that one day that all of the other gods will be dwarfed by this mighty God, by this mighty King. Verse two teaches us that all of us are gonna have to bow before him and that he's the one that is reigning and superintending the history of providence. That is that there is one God and we should worship him. There is one God and we should worship. Verse two teaches us this, right? And the mandate of monotheism, the mandate of there being one God, one true God is that whoever knows the one true God has the responsibility, has the mission to make that one God known. If you know the God that is real and everybody else is worshiping something that is false, everybody else is defying him. Everybody else is, is robbing him and stealing him of the worship that only he is deserving of. His glory is not spreading and being declared as it ought. That Their hope is unfounded and miserable and they are inviting his jealous wrath to come against them. And so if you know the truth, if you know the truth, you have the responsibility to make the one true God known to the world, the one true God, the one true hope known to the world. And this is where Israel failed. And this is where many of us are failing. The future Zion, the greater Zion, 
is going to be different, though. The future Zion, the greater Zion, is going to be different. The people of God are not going to be able to turn inward. We're not going to be able to withdraw. Instead, instead, what does he say? He says that peoples of all types, peoples of all colors, peoples of all tribes, peoples of all nations, they're going to stream to him together. They're going to gather in unity together and enjoy one another. And together, no worship will be stolen. No, all will declare that the king is greater. You see, it's interesting when you think about uh, the, the picture of what's happening because I don't know about y'all, I've never seen a river that streams uphill. Y'all ever seen that before? Like, like water doesn't flow up mountains. And here we're talking about the greatest mountain in the history of the world. A mountain that dwarfs all other mountains. A mountain that, that towers above the highest mountains that we can imagine. Imagine going to the base of Everest and watching a river go up the mountain. And this is the picture, isn't it? This is the picture that many peoples are coming. Many peoples are coming and they're gonna, we're going to ascend the mountain, but we're going to ascend the mountain as though we are a river following the path of gravity. It's mind boggling, mind blowing. What's he talking about? Y'all, this is the difference between heaven and hell. This is the difference between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. This is the difference between a kingdom that will condemn you versus a kingdom that will save you. If you remember back to Genesis chapter 11, we have one of the most famous stories in the Bible. We have the Tower of Babel, right? And in the Tower of Babel, you have mankind. They all, we all come together and what we decide is we decide that we're going to build by our own ingenuity and by our own effort, we're going to build a tower that can take us all the way into heaven. That we're going to try to get into a sin to where God is by our own strength, by our own effort, by our own ingenuity. And that's the thing about false gods. False gods are at the tops of mountains. They're in the high places, but, but you have to try to get there by your effort. You have to try to get there by the sweat of your brow. You have to try to get there by your own good behavior. You have to try to get there by obeying all of their rules. You have to try to get there by doing all the right things and avoiding all of the wrong things and trying to keep record all of the time. You have to get there and they ultimately kill you in the climb. So God looks down upon Babel and he says, no, no, salvation is not by man. Man cannot get to me, no. And he crushes the, the tower and he disperses the people and he confuses and it brings chaos into the world and all the different languages uh, come into existence. But what do we see here in Isaiah chapter two? What do we see in Isaiah chapter two? We see the reversal of Babel, don't we? We see the reversal of Babel. We see all of the peoples that were once chaos and confused, all the people that were dispersed around the globe, all the people that spoke languages and couldn't understand and couldn't come together, they are brought together. And now not only are they brought together, they aren't there expected to climb the mountain. No, they are streaming up the mountain in unity together. What was now broken apart, God is bringing together again, being drawn uphill and it requires as much effort from them as water falling off the side of a mountain. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment. 
He has climbed the mountain for us. He obeyed in perfect righteousness. He overcame the heights of temptation. He carried our sin with him up the mountain to Calvary. He overcame the gulf between us and the Father. Yes, Jesus has conquered the mountain so that every drunk and every gossip, every liar and every murderer, every deadbeat dad and sexual deviant, every Republican and Democrat, every black and white, every Mormon and Muslim, every American and African, every child and senior can be swept up in the swift current of God's grace and be taken up by his effort, by his power, by his name, by his birth, by his death, by his resurrection to the top of the mountain of Zion that now we, not by our effort, but by his can enjoy the kindness and the glory of God. But he's not finished. He's not finished. It has been accomplished. It has been fulfilled. But there is more yet to come. For he has assured us that a day is coming when Zion will be fully consummated and all nations will be represented at the supper of the Lamb and will sing a new song with one voice to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forevermore. So we go, church. We go. We go because Christ has been the fulfillment and Christ is the assurance. We go that we might stand up where Israel laid down. This morning, do you believe that's the hope of the world? Do you believe that's the hope of the world? Because he says that the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And I don't know, but that sounds a lot like the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in Isaiah 2, already 700 years before the beginning of the church, he says, the word of the Lord will go forward through my people from Jerusalem to the edges of the world. And he will collect my people and bring them to my throne. That's us. That's us. For all of us who have found the truth in Christ, for all of us who have found the remedy to our hopelessness, for all of us that have found the solution to our sin, for all of us that can go to sleep and know that we are right with God and can enjoy God, it is our responsibility to go forth from the church to the ends of the earth and to collect God's people for him and to bring him and to offer him and say, King, 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 here is your church. Do you believe he is the hope of the world? That brings us to our final hope, Jesus is the hope of unthreatened peace. Jesus is the hope of unthreatened peace. You'll remember on that evening of Jesus' birth, the famous story, the, the multitude of angels, they come and they open up the heavens and they appear to the shepherds. They're singing. I want you to think about that. They're singing. The throne room of God in heaven and here they are singing and honoring a baby born into poverty. They sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And even that statement, even that statement, that statement sang by those angels 700 years after Isaiah and 2,000 years before us, that singing, that, that song is a statement of both fulfillment and an assurance. For Jesus had come offering peace to men. He had come saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And you who are sinners, you who are unrighteous, you who have no hope, you can get to God through me. You can be at peace 
with God. And being at peace with God, you can have now within you because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, because of your security. Now, in the hand of God, you can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's fulfilled. It's fulfilled. But our lives don't often look peaceful, do they? There's still more to come. We still have the threat of cancer. We can still be persecuted by our government. We can still face great hardship in our families, great disappointment in our careers. And so yes, 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 we're at peace with God. We can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's fulfilled, but it's not yet fully consummated. And that's the assurance. That's the picture of Isaiah. A day is coming soon when our military academies are gonna shut the doors. The days are coming soon when the CIA and the FBI are going to stop training people for war. When the armed services will be no longer needed. When the, when the child will play at the hole of the cobra. When the lion and the lamb will lay down together and they will rejoice together. When the weapons of war, the sword and the spear will be fashioned and molded into, into the instruments of prosperity. The plowshare and the pruning hook. The day is coming, in other words, in which your peace, the peace that you know in all of your life, will have no more threat. There will be no more threat for grief, no more threat for disease, no more threat for hardship, no more threat for the rebellion of your children, no more threat for a hopeless night of insomnia. There will be no more threat to the peace that you know. It will be totally and fully consummated in Christ. Ever wonder... Why it is that Jesus leaves us here? Ever wonder that? There's been days I've wondered that. When I've hurt, when I've been sick, when I face surgeries and uncertainty. I just wonder, God, what, would you just send Jesus now? Just send Jesus now. I'm, I'm tired of all of this. Would you just send Jesus now? I want, I want peace now. I want to be in your kingdom now. I want to know your glory more fully now. Just send Jesus now. Ever wonder why he doesn't do that? He doesn't do that because he's making eternity more wonderful. Ever think about that? He doesn't do that because he's still collecting his people. He, he doesn't do that because he's still building his church. He doesn't do that because there's still more people to find hope in him. He doesn't do that because you are still increasing your treasure in heaven to enjoy forever. He doesn't do that because you're still searching out the depths of his wonder and the depths of his glory. And you haven't even seen the veiled edges of it yet, man. He doesn't do that because he is making eternity fuller and better and richer and deeper as his church comes and ascends to him through Christ on the mountain to be with him forever. And so he closes in verse five with a command, a command for Israel in that day, a command for the church in our day. He says, I have seen my mind illuminated with the light of God's glory. 
I, I've, I've seen God's glory in a way and God's judgment in a way and, and God's future in a way and God's mission in a way that has changed everything that I say. I can see now, I can see now that the greater kingdom is assured and I can see now that all peoples have hope and I can see that it is certain and I can see that peace is now certain. So he says, oh Israel, oh Israel, follow me. Let your minds be brightened by the light of God and now let's live like it. Let's live like it. And this morning I ask you, will you live like it? Will you live like it or will you worry yourself to death like the rest of the world? Will you live like it or will you try to buy your way into joy like your neighbors? Will you live like it or will you continue to live as though God isn't there and God isn't at work? Because you see, Jesus came. Jesus came and he fulfilled your hope. And Jesus came and he assured your hope. So come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.